Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. This was not planned. You're going to you're going to hear cuz this is we're 2 days before an election. You're going to hear this passage and be like, "Really? This was not planned." As a matter of fact, I looked at this about a month ago. I was like, "Oh my, I'm going to get sick the night before and let Brad do this sermon." Uh so, not planned. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. 8, verse 1 through 9. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So Solomon in Ecclesiastes, we believe it's Solomon the teacher is what is referred to. Most people think it's Solomon. is teaching us about how to live well, how, how life works uh, best in, in God's plan, how life doesn't work in this idea of under the sun, meaning life apart from God. He's taking a hard look at, at life. Our, our catchphrase for this series has been, if only, if only dot, 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 and all the questions and all the things that we would fill in there. And so Solomon, as he's looking all of life, he's going to look at all of life, including government, including politics, and invite us to ask some hard questions of ourselves as we think about politics and government and how God fits into this. And so he starts in verse 1, who is like the wise? So if Solomon is the teacher here, which most people think he is, he's also the person that wrote much of the book of Proverbs. And this first verse is going to remind us of Proverbs because he's going to introduce this idea of of wise or the wise. If you've read the book of Proverbs over and over, it will say the wise and it will have some thoughts and the fool does this. And as as we look at wise and fool, what we can't say is, oh, there's a group of people that are wise, and there's a group of people that are fools. The reality is all of us are wise and all of us are fools. Agreed? Yes. The wise, according to Proverbs, so I can live as a wise person. I can be acting in wisdom when I am operating my life as God has planned. When I am living under the rule and reign of Jesus, I am living as a wise person. Where I'm living under the rule and reign of Daniel, I am a fool. And so that's how he starts verse 1. Who is like the wise? And a man's wisdom, it makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So so the wise, there's this countenance on their body that, that changes because they're living the way God has called us to live. My face is going to resemble something of what it means to be a wise person. He's going to keep going. Verse 2, and he tells us, keep the king's command. 
So he introduces us to this idea of wisdom or the wise person. And then he's, his next statement is, so a wise person keeps the king's command. Now as we think about government, and by the way, I'm not going to take some stand on some political person or statement. So everyone just breathe. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, we're not going to do that here. As a matter of fact, I, I want to pull us in a different way. But as we think about government, it's an important to understand. So in Genesis chapter 1, God created Adam and Eve, created humanity with this invitation that they would rule the earth as his, in partnership with God, as his representatives on the earth to bring flourishing, that humans would be in partnership with God. Humans rebel against that partnership, take up their own power to, to live and, and rule the world how they want to do it. And so under the sun now is this world that humans created apart from God. So the way God designed Genesis, there's no government. There's no politics. There's no kings because God and humans would rule together. Under the sun, when, when humans rebelled, now you're going to see the form of, of governments and nations. And under the sun... The reality is God gives us government, rulers, as part of his plan to restrain evil and bring good. Government's not his plan from the beginning. That was him ruling with humans. But now under the sun, God is going to use governments to restrain evil. And as we look at governments, any government, here's what we've got to say. It's a collision of good and evil. There is a good side of government that God uses them to accomplish his purposes and bring order in a way that can be flourishing for humanity, yet every government has an evil side to it. It's not either or, it's both. And so Israel, as is, is Solomon's writing or the teacher's writing, he's talking to the people of Israel, Israel are under a government, uh, under a king. And if you look at how this happened, it's very interesting. I, I thought for years that God did not, not want Israel to have a king. And then when, right before Saul, Israel was like, God, we want a king. As I study more, I realize that's not true because actually in Deuteronomy, God talks about when Israel has a king, what that king is to look like. Just some, some, some things he said. It should be someone who's from, from their tribe, an Israelite, someone that recognized God's authority. He said they shouldn't acquire a bunch of wealth so that their hearts wouldn't be strayed. They shouldn't marry a bunch of foreign wives. Because their hearts would be straight. In, the, in those days, kings would, would marry wives to form allegiance with other nations. And so he forbids that. He, he gives in Deuteronomy some guidelines around what a king of Israel looked like. And so as we look at Israel's history, they start growing and they want a king. They ask God for a king, and so God has in his mind what their king should look like, but the problem with Israel is they want a king like every other country has a king, and that is one that has strength, that has power, that's charismatic, that's good-looking. And God says, no, that's not the type of king I have for you, but Israel says, no, God, we want this type of king, and so God says, okay, and he gives them Saul. Now, if Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, Saul is his grandfather. In, in, it's not like literally father, but as far as the first king, David, his father is the second king, and then Solomon is the third king. So, they, so God gives Israel Saul, 
And Saul becomes an evil king. He, he is charismatic, he's strong, he's good looking, he's handsome, but he leads in a broken way, actually ends up going crazy. And so God now calls David to be king, the man that God had in mind from the beginning, the type of man that God had in mind from the beginning. So he calls David as this total opposite of Saul. David's picked out, he's the youngest, he's not tall, good looking, handsome, he's not a strong leader yet, he's a humble boy. And God chooses him. And if you look at the Bible, 1 Samuel, it kind of contrasts David and Saul and how they led. So Israel wants a king. God has an idea of what their king should be. They don't choose that king. They choose Saul. It goes bad for him. God chooses David. Now, David has his problems, doesn't he? And this is where government, we got to know, even the best man or woman we can put in place of government has his flaws. David has many flaws, but yet he's called a man after God's own heart. Why? In the midst of his flaws, he repents. You can read his prayers of repentance in the Psalms. He commits some big mistakes, yet he always comes back to God. And so in the Bible, we see this this contrast of David and Saul. And I know as Solomon's writing this, David's his father, you know he's thinking about how this played out with David. When he says, obey the king, honor the king, he's got to have his father in mind. He keeps going. Verse 3, don't be hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in evil cause, for he, the king, does what he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? You didn't say that to the king in those days. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So he's talking, the wise, they honor the king. And Solomon's got to be thinking of his father. So Israel chooses Saul. Saul goes crazy, becomes a bad king. God anoints David through the prophet Samuel to be the next king, but David's still a young boy. Well, Saul finds out that David's going to be the next king, and he's king, he decides he's going to kill him. And so he starts chasing and pursuing David. David has to flee, and there's a story, it's a crazy story in the Bible, where David's hiding in a cave because Saul's trying to kill him. And Saul's pursuing David, he can't find him, and Saul, the Bible says Saul has to use the restroom. That's what it says. And so he goes into a cave, because I guess that's where you use the restroom in those days. He goes into a cave to use the restroom, and it's the cave David's hiding out in. Remember, Saul's trying to find David to kill him. Saul goes into the cave to use the restroom, and David has an opportunity to kill Saul. Now remember, David knows he's going to be king. He's been declared by God, you will be the king. Yet at the time, Saul is still the king. And here's what David says in 1 Samuel 24. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you, Saul, into my hands in the cave. And some told me, kill him, David. But I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand out against my Lord. For he, Saul, is the Lord's anointed. So David's in a cave, Saul goes in, he has the opportunity to kill him, and he shows restraint. He trusts in the sovereignty of God. And as the teacher, Solomon, now is writing this, I've got to think that's what's going through his mind as he writes this. Honor the king. 
David wasn't crowned king yet. He wasn't operating there. So even though Saul was evil and trying to kill him, he honored him. Honor the king. It's restraint. So Solomon's teaching about the wise person, the wise person, how to live wise in the land. He's writing to the people of Israel, and he says, the wise, they don't rebel because it doesn't go well for you. Like Solomon's probably killed his, his, uh, executed his own group of insurrectionists by this point. He's been king. Here's what he says. I'm king. I can do whatever I want. Don't rebel because it won't go well for you. I think that's what he's telling. The wise live like that. And so we, we take this now. We take these words of Ecclesiastes several thousand years later. And we're trying to make sense of this. And so now we have the New Testament to try to make sense of, God, what are you talking about? When you wrote through the hands of the teacher Ecclesiastes and you told the people, don't rebel against the king, honor the king, what, what's going through your mind? Give us more. And so we have the New Testament, and Jesus comes along, and if you've read Jesus much, he doesn't get involved in politics. Many times, he's asked to weigh in on the hot topics of his day, and he doesn't do it. Jesus comes, he doesn't try to pass new laws, he doesn't try to get the right candidate to be king he doesn't try to overthrow an evil empire. He doesn't spread a political agenda. He does quite the opposite. There's many times where Jesus is asked to weigh in on political issues, and he just simply doesn't do it. There's one, and you guys re remember this. We taught through, taught through Luke. There's one where the Pharisees come to him, and they ask Jesus, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question Jesus asks. If you can imagine, Jesus' teaching, he's got a bunch of people around him. Here come the Pharisees. They want to trap him. Here's the question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now remember, they didn't live in a democracy. Caesar, Caesar is doing evil things. He's an evil king. He's doing all sorts of bad things. Jesus, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus has no option here but to make someone angry if he answers. Because he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees are going to say, oh, see, Jesus isn't from God. He's for Caesar because Caesar says he's Lord. Caesar said he's a God. So they've got him. He's no longer from Yahweh, from God, because now his allegiance is to Caesar. But if Jesus, Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes because I'm for God and his team, now they're going to say, look, Jesus, he's trying to rebel against Caesar. Now they go to the government officials. They have everything they need to arrest him. It's a trap. Jesus, weigh in on which side you're on. And what's Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to the Lord what is the Lord's. Jesus' agenda. There's no way we can read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and say in any way Jesus had a political agenda. He had a kingdom agenda. As a matter of fact, he'll say this, my kingdom, it's not of this world. Now his disciples didn't get this. The whole time he's leading his disciples, they think they are establishing a new kingdom. They think that they are going to take over, that they're going to take over Rome, they're going to kill the emperor and the, and the Jews through, through King Jesus are going to rule the land. And Jesus over and over reminds them, no, 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 my, my kingdom is not of this world. As a matter of fact, when he's 
asked to teach them to pray, what's he pray? Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' main focus of his life was the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the world. Any version of the kingdom of the world. It was the kingdom of God. He was all always orienting people back to the reality of God's kingdom. And ultimately, he's killed by the state as an enemy of the state. So we look at Jesus, and we try to make sense of Ecclesiastes. It's like, well, Jesus didn't really get involved. I mean, he, he honored the, the king. He didn't speak out against Rome. He didn't try to overthrow Rome. He did his kingdom work, and he was killed for being God. And so then we go to the New Testament, we look, okay, what about first century believers? And again, if you study first century church, early believers weren't very concerned with changing Rome. They were concerned with honoring Jesus and proclaiming the gospel. That was their concern, planting new churches. And so Paul, writing to the church in Rome in Romans 13.1, says this, and I think it will help us understand how as Christians do we operate in the reality of government. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So Solomon says, honor the king. Don't speak out against him, because it will go bad for you. He will kill you. Jesus comes along, and he lives that way. He honors the king. He honors the powers that be, yet he has his own agenda of the kingdom of God that he proclaims, then Paul, writing to this church in Rome, these first century believers, says, honor the king, submit to the king. And he says something here that theologically I think will help us. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So in a way, he says, as you honor one authority, you honor another authority. And those that exist, meaning governments, have been instituted by God. So he says, honor the government, because it's an authority. And as you honor one authority, you honor another authority. And know that all authorities have been instituted by God. Now, this term instituted, I did some research on, on this. Because instituted has this idea of like God started them. But as you look at the Greek word instituted, here's what it means. Put into order, arranged, or assigned a place. Now, different theologians, theologians disagree on this, and you can take it, you can do your research and figure this out. But as I read this and I read the Greek, here's what it seems like. That God doesn't necessarily breathe into existence all these governments. Oh, we need a new government here to make this happen. But what God does, according to this passage, this Greek word instituted, is God seems to put into place or arrange the governments of the day. Meaning that God can and does use governments to restrain evil and accomplish his purposes. It doesn't mean that every government is carrying out God's plan at all times. But that God orders and arranges. And Americans, we got to know this. It doesn't mean that America is always on the side of God or that God is always on the side of America, but that God will use America to accomplish his purposes. God is said to order, to arrange, to assign a place 
of the governments that be. And I've got to, is there a mystery to this? Yes. Yes, there's a mystery to this. But out of this belief in Romans chapter 13 in Ecclesiastes that God is sovereign, God is in charge of all, that God orders, that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. That's what Psalm says. The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Out of this belief that God is sovereign and he's in control, now believers are taught to submit to authority, to honor authority. Now, can you imagine being a first century Christian, writing in Rome, which is the capital? So, so let's take it. You're, you're a first century Christian in Washington, D.C. That's where these believers are. And Washington, D.C. is killing other Christians. They're dragging you to the Colosseum, and they are torturing you for sport. Let's not remember the first century climate, what that was like for believers. They were lighting you on fire to light the pathways of their roads because you were a Christian. And you get a word, you get a letter in the mail one day, or actually a messenger comes and says, I have a word from you from Paul on how you should live with this evil government. Oh, here we go. He's going to let it rip. Don't submit to any governments that aren't, don't recognize Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord and Caesar's not, so rise against him. It's what you think's happening. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. God's plan for the first century church was to, to defeat Caesar and the powers of the world, not through revolution and power over, but through the upside-down kingdom portrayed in the Sermon on the Mount. That was the hope of the world. And so out of that, he says, submit to your king, because your king ain't my plan. It's the church operating out of what Jesus taught living a countercultural way. And what marked the early believers, you can see writings of them from kings, what marked these early believers is how countercultural they lived. Not how countercultural they spoke against the king, but how they operated humbly underneath his authority, but doing really good things like caring for the poor and the sick and dying a martyr's death. That's what changed. And, and so God's plan for believers is an upside-down kingdom. It's a Sermon on the Mount. It's do good instead of evil. It's love instead of hate. It's restraint instead of revenge. He's writing to Rome, and he says, submit. Submit to your governing authorities. And, and Right before this, he'll say, don't, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, it's the upside-down kingdom. The kingdom of the world overcome evil through power. Jesus overcomes evil through good, and he's inviting first-century believers into that. So he keeps going, Romans 13, 1, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, Therefore, because of this belief, 
Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Why would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So in Romans 12, he's going to start with, don't do evil, but overcome evil with good. He's going to talk about government. He's going to have this statement again. Do what is good. Do good. Honor your government. Do good. And Paul is writing to persecuted people. How do you overcome evil? Even evil government. You do good. You love your neighbor. You forgive. You serve the poor. You show honor. You do good. First Peter, he's writing to a different group of Christians. He says this, First Peter 2. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Here we go. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You have a new, another apostle writing to a group of Christians. Saying, how do we operate in this insane world where the emperor is killing us and arresting us and torturing us in front of the masses? You do good. And these early believers seem to not be very focused on changing the policy of Rome, but honoring Jesus even to death. As a matter of fact, many of them believe in the honor to be killed for their faith. So what do we do with this? So now we're a new generation of Christians, that, and we must take these teachings in the Bible of Ecclesiastes, of don't speak against the king, obey the king, Romans and First Peter about honor the king, honor the emperor, do good. And we got to acknowledge there's a challenge here because the Bible's written in an era of kings and monarchies and emperors, and now we live in a democracy where participation's encouraged. Participation was discouraged in first century. Enough with your head on a platter if you participate too much. But now we live in a democracy where it's encouraged. So how as followers of Jesus now do we live in an age of democracy and government? I think we take the teaching of Ecclesiastes and Jesus and the apostles and we say this, followers of Jesus are to be obedient as far as possible to whatever governments or power are over them. Which is why you're wearing masks today. Because we, the elders of Hill City, have leaders and governments over us that have asked us to wear a mask and we don't feel like that's an attack on our faith, that, that I'm saying that Jesus is not Lord. If I wear a mask, so I'm going to wear a mask. Now, does that mean that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics? No, I don't think so. I think there's different passions, different convictions that will determine different levels of involvement. So as Christians, we have, we have a guy named Russell Moore. Anyone read any of his, his stuff? He's a lobbyist in D.C. He does some amazing work for the kingdom of God, and he's Super active in politics as a lobbyist. Works for the Southern Baptist Convention. Read his stuff. Some really good stuff. And I'm glad we have 
Christians involved in different levels of politics. I'm glad we have Christians running for political office. Now, that's not my calling, okay? Hood for the next, not, not going to be there. Uh, my calling's quite different. So now I think it's left to individual believer to say, listen, what's it look like in a democracy for me to vote, for me to have convictions, for me to, to add discussion into the political climate, yet honor the emperor, honor the king, honor the governments, live under authority. And I think that's something for each individual Christian to have to wrestle with. How do I hold these things together in a democracy? Well, what, about, what about speaking out? Does, it, does this mean if I have to honor the emperor, I can't ever speak against where I, maybe where I'm concerned of different directions our country is going? I don't think so, but here's what I might challenge you with. If speaking out means you can type some characters on a keyboard and hit enter and send it to the masses, I would question if that is speaking out in a way of maybe how the Bible would invite us to do that. Maybe speaking out would in fact be sitting across someone who maybe disagrees with you and listening and having a dialogue. Maybe that would be speaking out. One of my burdens for Christians during this time, and I, I, I got off social media um, oh, a few months ago. I, was, I just had to be done with it for my own heart. Um, 1 Corinthians says this, if you speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a cleaning symbol. My fear is that Christians turn into that. That we're known for what we're against. And we're known for our hot takes on this and not the love of Jesus. Now again, have convictions, have passions, vote, be active. But I think as Christians, we have to reorient our heart, our hopes, our love is not in a better version of the kingdom of the world. Our hope is in a king and a kingdom that was coming and will come. That has to be our hope. And I'm talking to myself. I think there's an opportunity on the Sunday before Tuesday that we reorient our hopes back to a king and a kingdom. That we live in a way where we honor authorities, yet we exercise our freedom to vote and to have opinions and to think and to dialogue and to read and to disagree in love. But as believers, that we do in a way where we don't become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here's some questions I've asked myself this week I maybe invite you to ask yourself. Have I shared the hope of Jesus as much in the last three months as I've shared my political opinion? That's a question. Or other opinion. I, I'm, I'm not huge into politics, but I have other opinions I'd gladly share with you on things. I think there's a question I have to always ask myself. Am I sharing the hope of Jesus as much as I've shared other opinions? Here's maybe a question I'd ask you. Am I more concerned with creating a political climate of America than I am growing the kingdom of God? Over the past three months, has my focus been more about I want to make sure this happens with this election as opposed to how do I live in a way that the kingdom of God spreads and grows. 
Here's a question to maybe ask yourself. Are my political actions alienating me from other believers? Now, I didn't say opinions. This is what I love about Hill City. We have people all over the map on political ideas and opinions. Not opinions, but are your political actions alienating you from other believers? So how do we live in light of Ecclesiastes and Jesus and Paul and Peter and the words they've taught us? Here's what it is. This week, I think what you do, you exercise your freedom, you vote your conscience, but be cautious of how much hope you have in your political party or candidate. And love your neighbor. If your candidate wins on Tuesday, be subject to them, pray for them, and love your neighbor. On whatever side, if your candidate wins, honor them, pray for them, but love your neighbor because there's going to be half of our country that's scared on Wednesday or maybe two weeks, whenever we find out. <laughs> a little bit, little bit different this, this year. But half of our country is going to be scared. It's going to be afraid. It's going to be angry. It's going to be hurt. It's going to be anxious. And so if your candidate wins as a believer, please don't gloat. If your candidate loses Tuesday, be subject to your leader that's above you. Pray for them, honor them, and love your neighbor. Don't go to social media and whine and complain because in doing so, waste we're saying God's not in control. Can we, can we make sure we understand that? Every time I, oh, this world's going to, I'm saying, I don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Now, side note, do you need to have some people you can close the door and say, oh my gosh, I'm so afraid of this world? Yes, you do. Every once in a while, Brad, Michael, and I, I'm like, guys, get in the room, I shut the door, I'm just, Bleh. But as a believer, please don't do that here. Whoever wins, show honor and love your neighbor. See, I think what Solomon teaches us in Ecclesiastes is the wise don't panic. Let, let's wrap up here. Verse 6. There's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what it was, is to be. Like, you don't know what's going to happen Tuesday. For who can tell him how it's to be? I can't tell you. No man has power to re retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war. There will always be nations at war. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Here's what he's saying. You're not going to figure out all the purposes of God. So the wise learn to rest in the sovereignty of God. We change what we can change. And we rest in the sovereignty of God. We've all got to confront the reality that we have no control you can't even control yourself. We have no control. And so how much, and I'm talking to Daniel, how much of what we can't control keeps us up at night? How much of what I can't control do I just hyper-focus on? I think what Ecclesiastes is telling us, Psalms telling, telling us that the wise, they honor the emperor because if not, you'll be killed in those days. And that the wise... Understand that God's in control and they can actually breathe and rest. And as believers, we got to remember, Brad told us this a few weeks ago, this world is not our home. 
So believers, know God, follow his word, do good, share the gospel, love one another deeply from the heart. Vote on Tuesday, but keep loving one another. And I love, let me end like this, 815, he's going to tell us this over and over. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him through all of his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Here's what I think Ecclesiastes, the teacher, would tell us. On Monday night, the night before the election, have a good meal, have some good wine with some good friends. Husbands, chase your wife around the house and rest in the sovereignty of God. Vote, exercise your freedom, but rest in the sovereignty of God because our hope is not in the kingdom of the world, it's a king and a kingdom. And a reminder on what happens Tuesday, if you think the world is out of control, may I remind us that the very moment it seemed the world was out of control, the death of Jesus. The very moment that the greatest act of injustice was happening, the death of Jesus. The very moment that it looked like evil had won, the death of Jesus, God was accomplishing his greatest victory. His greatest victory was in that moment we thought the world was out of control. And so believers in Christ, my goal today is that you would understand that government exists and that God has authority over all governments and all leaders, that you would respect the authorities over you, that you would try to live in a way to love your neighbor and show love to others in the midst of this political climate, but you would also be, that our, our hopes would be shifted, not to the kingdom of the world, but a king and a kingdom because the tomb is empty and he has risen and he's overtaken death. Let's pray.